Hello and welcome to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness with myself, Dr. Miriam Francois. Thank you for joining us today. Um, this podcast is dedicated to exploring the meaning of structural whiteness with an array of guests whose insights can help us truly understand this concept and its value, if any, in our conversations around race and racism here in the UK. On the subject of whiteness, the writer and academic Toni Morrison is quoted as saying, white people have a very, very serious problem and they should start thinking about what they can do about it. So here we are to explore the concept as it relates to the field of law. I'm joined today by a very illustrious guest. The New York Times has described him as the authentic voice of British justice and the Times as an inspiring figure forensically intelligent. Welcome to you, Nazir Afzal, OBE. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Miriam. Hi. So um, let's give the listeners uh, a little bit of background about you. You were born and raised in Small Heath, Birmingham. Is that right? Yes, I was born in inner city, Birmingham. My family came from the northwest frontier of Pakistan, the very traditional and tribalistic parts of Pakistan, and moved to the very traditional and tribalistic parts of Birmingham. Okay, and and so um, I read that you did experience um, a racist attack when you were young at the age of of 13, is that right? Several attacks. I mean, the way I describe it, and a lot of people who remember the 60s and 70s will know that racism was extremely overt. You had uh, skinheads, as they call themselves, on the street. Uh, Pretty much the only safe environment I had was my home, a loving environment. The moment I stepped out of that, I was um, within um, shouting distance of the football ground where abuse was thrown at me. I was spat at. I was attacked. My family were attacked. My neighbours were attacked. Uh, At school, I was um, regularly taunted. Uh, And the incident you refer to, which I reference in my book, uh, I was chased by three young men um, who were somewhat older than I was. Um, You spent a lot of time sprinting when you were young. Wow. Uh, but I wasn't fast enough, I'm afraid, and they caught up, caught up with me, beat me up. Uh, I had to go in the fetal position on the ground uh, to protect myself. Uh, I managed to escape only because some other taxi driver saw what was happening. Uh, and wow. when I got home, um, my father attended to my bruise, bruises and told me uh, not to do anything about it because there's no justice in this world. Mm. I mean, um, presumably that's the sort of incident that has quite an impact on you, um, and you now work in the field of justice. Um, how would you say it has affected you in the long term? I think your upbringing surely uh, has a major impact on, on, on the opportunities that you seek, uh, the passions that you may have. I think um, as a victim, and, 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 and obviously later in life, uh, speaking to victims and survivors, uh, I understood what they were going through. And therefore, I tried to fine tune what the state and the authorities did to ensure that they got the best possible service that you can imagine. Because I always put myself in the shoes of the people that I was confronted with, knowing what I had myself been through. So yes, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, my upbringing, um, the abuse, um, the just the the fact of living, uh, being hated, uh, must have played a significant role in my choice, chosen career as a lawyer and mm. ultimately 25 years as a prosecutor. Indeed. So on that subject, so you're the former chief 
Director for Northwest England and formerly Director in London. During your 24-year career, you've prosecuted some of the most high-profile cases in the country, including cases related to violence against women and girls, child sexual abuse and honour-based violence. Today, you oversee more than 100,000 prosecutions each year, and many people will know you from the prosecutions of the so-called Rochdale grooming gang cases, as well as BBC presenter Stuart Hall, which have quite literally changed the landscape of child protection uh, in this country. Now, we'll, we'll come to those, but before we do, I like to ask all my guests to define what whiteness means to them. What's your definition of whiteness? Uh, again, I'm not a sociologist or a criminologist, and, and my experience is based on my experiences. So uh, it's the fact that um, if you are um, not, if you're not black or you're not brown or you're not different, uh, then you have uh, it easier, to put it bluntly. Um, mm -hmm. It's pretty invisible, actually, whiteness. Uh, white people generally don't talk about the power that they have just by simply being white. Uh, whereas uh, I recognised and people around me of colour recognised the obstacles they faced automatically um, just because of the colour of their skin, uh, the fact that they came from certain different environments, different countries, etc. Um, I think it's so I see whiteness in the context of it being different to what I experienced. Uh, yeah. And when I talk to, uh, I, yeah, obviously, I'm very fortunate to have spoken to lots of white people during my career and I've worked with them. Um, the best example I can give you, Miriam, was when I was given my OBE by the Queen. Uh, almost immediately afterwards, a, a very senior white lawyer comes up to me, uh, somewhat older than I was, uh, and he said, uh, "It was my turn. This is what he, this is him talking about himself. Yeah. I should have got. I should have got that. Uh, it, you just got it because of the colour of your skin." Oof. And uh, it struck me uh, that uh, there's a sort of legitimate, not legitimate, illegitimate expectation. Uh, that people have because of the fact that they're white and the environments they grew up in uh, and that we have to fight pretty much uh, for everything that we have. Mm. And you, so you were awarded that OBE in 2005 by the Queen for your work with the CPS and, and with local communities. I, I'd be really keen to hear what this award meant to you because a lot of people, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy around OBEs. For those who don't know, the OBE um, is an award that stands for Order of the British Empire. And some people feel that the term has colonial overtones. Um, how did you feel about accepting it? It wasn't a case of whether um, I never thought about the empire bit. Uh, we, we have um, in this country, there is very little by way of recognition. You can get a, a pride award or a people's award or some. It, to me, it was just recognition by the state, as it was then, uh, of the work that I had done. Strange as it may sound, it meant a great deal more uh, to my uh, now deceased mother uh, and to my family, uh, you know, literally they were far, far more excited than I was. For me, it was just a normal day going to collect it. For them, uh, they dressed up, they bussed up uh, to get bussed down from Birmingham. Uh, it was a bigger deal for them. And it was just seen, as I've always seen it, as a recognition uh, and a, a, almost like a stepping stone, uh, given the journey that I've been on. Uh, almost, you know, you are now part of, I wasn't, but the, the view was you are now part of the society uh, in which you were grown up, which you grew up in. Um, mm. So it never never entered my head. I, I totally acknowledge how some people are concerned about uh, the e bit uh, of that. 
But I think the other thing that is to be said, I've mentioned my family come from the northwest frontier of Pakistan. My father and my grandfather worked uh, as caterers for the mm. British Army. Um, so during the time of the empire, uh, when India was under British rule, they were providing catering services. It's the only thing I have in common, actually, with President Obama, is that my, uh, my grandfather was a caterer, too. And he was engaged with the British Army. He learned his English that way. He never saw the British uh, as enemies, uh, although absolutely he's the most proud, was the most proudest Pakistani you could imagine. Um, mm. So it, it never entered my head, and it still doesn't enter my head, uh, concern me tremendously um, mm. as to what the what the E stands for. What's more important, certainly to my family, was um, that it was recognition that somehow we belonged. Yeah, given that we no, spent twenty I, thirty I, years not belonging. Yes, yeah. no, I hear I hear you, and I think that's really at the heart of the the debate, really, isn't it? Um, and and I mean, I'm really interested to hear, you know, given your decades long experience in the legal field, how do you conceptualize the relationship between whiteness and the law? Because of course, we know that here in the UK, I mean, I'm we're looking at 2018 figures where the prosecution and sentencing for black people was three times higher than for white people. I think minority groups are disproportionately represented in youth criminal justice, in prison. We know stop and search disproportionately affects minority groups with black people facing the highest rates. Um, so what's the relationship in your view between whiteness and the law? It has to be said first up that um, I, I was now, I mean, I prosecuted, but passed by best part of a million cases during my career or supervised the prosecution of a million cases. And it never, ever, ever occurred to me, or did I consider the ethnicity of the perpetrator, or for that matter, the victim. Um, it was, you know, I think one of the things you're brought up on uh, is to act without fear or favor. And so that's that's how I operated it. And, you know, there were, rarely did I would look behind me if I was in court to look at what color the perpetrator was, you know, or the alleged offender was. It didn't matter to me, but as you've just indicated, uh, and I've written about extensively, uh, there are barriers which uh, people of colour face. So you know, it, it's the way I presented, actually, Miriam, you are mm. more likely to be stopped and searched. You are more likely to be arrested. You're more likely to be uh, remanded in custody. You're more likely to be charged with a crime. You're more likely to be convicted by a jury. You're more likely to be sentenced to prison. And you're more likely to come out of prison and reoffend because you haven't been rehabilitated. Those are the obstacles. Those are the facts. You can't go beyond the facts. I mean... Uh, people can have their opinion if they want, but those are the facts that we deal with. And therefore, yeah. there must be some level of structural racism that permits that to happen. And uh, from my perspective, uh, I have done what I can in my small way to challenge that, uh, whether it's um, through uh, the training of my staff to make them more aware of these uh, issues, uh, whether it's um, ensuring that we prosecute cases fairly and robustly, as we did, um, all of those things are, are ways in which I can somehow mitigate. But, you know, one individual or one group, a small group cannot mitigate uh, that level of structural racism. Mm. And can I just um, get some clarity from you on what, what do you understand structural racism to mean? I think for a lot of people, it might seem a bit opaque if you're not part of these conversations, at, you know, maybe an academic level. What does it mean to you? Well, again, I'm not an academic and uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have uh, any uh, definition to be able to offer other than my experience. My experience tells me, as I just said a moment ago, if you are uh, black or brown, basically if you're not white, 
there are things that happen in the system automatically without uh, anybody pressing a lever, uh, which will which will mitigate, will discriminate against you. And uh, and that, to my mind, is what I mean by structural racism. Uh, and it, it it doesn't take you know one individual to do uh, to make it happen. The system makes it happen. Yeah. So the fact that you're you're nine times more likely to be stopped and searched uh, if you're a, a black person, um, you know, you how can you possibly justify that? Yeah. Uh, unless you unless there is something in the system that enables that or facilitates mm. that uh, and. As I say, um, I'm not an academic enough or trained enough to be able to give you the answers. I can just describe what I've seen. No, no, we, we value those insights um, very much so. Um, and so over the course of your career, you have actually overseen, you know, probably some of the most controversial cases which have really divided the nation um, with accusations of, of racism and, and community complacency being thrown about in each of them. And the first one I'd like to come to um, is the Rochdale grooming gang case. Um, you say about this case that it was one of the most important cases in the history of modern British justice. And just for those who don't know about this case. Um, it refers to a child sex abuse ring, uh, which involved um, at least for one of them, 47 underage teenage girls, nine men convicted of sex trafficking and other offences, including rape in 2012. And one of the men convicted of sex trafficking was a religious studies teacher at a mosque and a married father of five. The girls were often plied with drugs and alcohol. One of the victims, only 15, was too drunk to recall being raped by 20 men. Another 13-year-old had to have an abortion. So it was a truly horrifying case and one of uh, a several that would actually emerge subsequently. Um, you worked on this case, which really divided um, the nation. What role did race play in that case, in your view? Well, two things. Firstly, I don't think it divided the nation. Uh, I think that the vast majority, in fact, the vast majority of the nation was horrified by what they saw uh, and what they heard. Um, you know, it could have been anybody. As I said a moment ago, I wasn't in the slightest bit concerned as to the colour or ethnicity of the perpetrators. That was a fact, unfortunately, in that case. Uh, and additionally, so was the, at that time, the known uh, race or ethnicity of the victims. Yeah. Uh, it needs to be said that uh, after after I prosecuted that case, I also prosecuted the ringleader for his abuse of a girl of the same ethnicity as him. So there are victims from minority communities and there are victims from minority communities of that particular gang. Yeah. So um, the impact that it has, when I, when I say it was uh, groundbreaking or it was not necessarily because of the, uh, it wasn't actually because of the ethnicity or anything of the individuals. It was groundbreaking because of a number of things. One, it was a, a recognition of how deep and deep-seated child sexual abuse is in this country. Secondly, it was a recognition of how people were able without in, with impunity, how the authorities, the police, the prosecutors, social services, children, local authorities, everybody had simply turned a blind eye to what was happening, particularly uh, to the victims in this case. Uh, and thirdly, why uh, we as a society and our communities uh, seem to know about it uh, but didn't seem to register it. So I think those are the those are the main things that um, made it as important as it was. But we can't get away from the fact, and I, yeah, it's impossible 
I go back to what I said about facts rather than opinions. Yes. If you have if you have nine men, eight of whom are British Pakistani and one is British Afghan, and you have at that time, as we knew, 47 white girls, then yeah. there's no doubt the ethnicity is an issue. The point I keep saying, and I said it when I was giving evidence in Parliament, is it's an issue, but it's not the issue. Okay. The issue, yes. the issue was the um, the uh, vulnerability of the of the victims. Uh, what I said a moment ago, the blindness of the state, uh, the uh, the lack of uh, support given to people who were suffering, etc. Those, but that's the issue. Uh, the fact that a wide class of of girls in this country were just unheard, unlistened to, uh, voiceless, left behind. That was the issue. But an issue was the fact that a group of men of the, of the same ethnicity were able to act with impunity uh, and select and abuse so, so many girls. And so, you know, strange as it may sound, Miriam, I'm not the world's expert, but within having prosecuted that case, which, as you know, was exploited by the far right and continues yes. to be exploited by the far right. I mean, yeah. those cases continue to be so. But I, I keep saying, and I'll say it again, the far right were not interested and are never interested in the victims. No. They they, uh, they were outside of the Crown Court in Liverpool every day while the trial was taking place. But their motivation wasn't to see justice done. Their motivation was somehow to stop that case going ahead, strange as it may sound, because mm -hmm. they could then go and tell their followers, look, there's no justice in this world. Yeah. Uh, take the streets, let's have race riots, etc., etc. So mm. my duty by bringing that case was to prevent that from happening. To show yeah. them that justice, the justice system can remedy, uh, or not remedy, but can deliver justice where previously it hadn't done so. And I think that's important. But, you know, I, over, the, over the years, and certainly during the immediate aftermath of that case, I tried to understand why some people were concerned about the uh, ethnicity of the perpetrators. Yeah. And, yes. Uh, and since that time, you know, there have been hundreds more that have been brought to justice, all with similar... Uh, ethnicity, but let's make this abundantly clear. And I always say this: that you're most likely to be sexually abused in the family. Mm -hmm. uh, Eighty-four percent of sex offenders, uh, child sex offenders in this country, are British white men. Uh, you are the second largest group of offending is online. The third largest group is in institutions, uh, schools, etc. Street grooming of the type we saw in Rochdale is the smallest. It's thousands of victims, but the smallest by number. So we always need to contextualize it. Otherwise, we're going to be painting this picture that if you're black or you're brown, you're a sex offender. Well, and I, and I recall the headlines at that time. You might also, I mean, referring to Muslim sex gangs and Asian sex gangs. And um, at the time, there was um, an interview with the former head of the children's charity, Barnado, who said, Barnado, sorry, who said there's very troubling evidence that Asians are overwhelmingly represented in the prosecutions for such offences, referring in this case to street grooming of teenage girls in northern towns. And I think when I was referring to the nation being divided, I felt that the division was over the emphasis being based on the ethnicity of the perpetrators. And I suppose I'm keen to sort of understand from someone who works so closely on it, you've, you've said, you know, already that you felt that it was an issue and not the issue. Um, but in what way was it an issue? The fact that these men were able to operate as they did, pretty much in, in plain sight, 
Um, there is, you know, the evidence was, and the evidence remains, and will be, and it has been in all the other cases that I've dealt with, that these men were able to run around the streets of, of in that case, North Manchester, um, in plain daylight, uh, pick up these girls from care homes or or from school or wherever it may be, uh, take them back to where they worked or some other environment and pass them around as if um, as if they were nothing. Uh, and the, the, they, they, what do they have in common? Uh, well, they're, first and foremost, they're men. I mean, let's make this abundantly clear. Uh, that's the most important thing. That's the, it's the gender uh, mm-hmm. was, was the issue. Uh, mm-hmm. But secondly, that their network was based around uh, the fact that they knew each other, the community they came, they were part of, often the places they worked, uh, those kinds of things. So those, that's the reason why they were like that. But I, and again, contextualize it, almost immediately after I prosecuted that case, uh, Miriam, I also prosecuted 10 white men for their yeah. abuse of girls in, in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. And that got no publicity. I actually, uh, yes, remember seeing that and thinking, yes, there's been very little conversation of this particular case actually so, so, so from my perspective it's not my fault i'm afraid um, no uh, the, the media not, yeah. or the press or whatever it is focus on something i just did my job and i ensured as and my teams did to ensure that people were brought to justice the fact that the narrative uh became a one of race or religion or whatever it may be i did my damnedest and continue to do my damnedest to ensure yeah. that we focus on the victims uh, and not on any of that yeah and I'm, I, I suppose from the perspective of the conversation today, which is around whiteness, I was keen to explore whether you felt that actually in this case, the facts were being filtered through what we might call a form of structural whiteness, which is that there were certain sets of maybe prejudice about certain communities that were being manifested, even though in this case, they were the perpetrators. Um, but. Yeah, it's it's much more complicated. It's so complicated. I mean, the the, the white girls themselves were completely excluded too. I mean, yes. they they were yeah. not seen. The whole of, you know, the white community of of that part of the country uh, completely ignored them. They they weren't yeah. interested in them. They were they were seen as low lives and and given all sorts of uh, badges and, and labels. Um, so they were they were being treated with disdain. Yeah. Uh, you then have the perpetrators who were being ignored. There's some evidence, uh, which I've seen, that perhaps that was because of some element of political correctness. People have said that to me. But yes, the reality is, the vast majority though, isn't about that. The vast majority was just incompetence. Um, that people who should have d- known how to do their jobs didn't do their jobs properly. Uh, and because of that, people were able to reoffend as they did. So I think, um, I think we need to, you know, it, it's much more nuanced uh, than people uh, would like to make out. Uh, but, but people, I mean, the, uh, in the immediate aftermath of that prosecution, Miriam, which I think I talk about again in my book, mm. um, I was targeted by the far right. Now, yeah. I'm the one who prosecuted the case. I'm the one who brought those men to justice. I'm the one who decided to reverse the original decision not to prosecute, made by two white prosecutors, by the way. Um, and when I'd done that, the far right, discovering that I was the one that did that, saw you know, that somehow I damaged their narrative, which is that actually all brown people are sex offenders. Mm. And so uh, if, if a brown person brought the case, we've got to damage him and destroy him. And so they put stuff on... Facebook on on their various websites saying that I was the one that didn't prosecute these guys. Mm. And then I had, you know, I've prosecuted the most serious organized criminals you can imagine. I never talked about my work at home. Suddenly, 
I had a far right thugs demonstrating outside of my home. You know, I had to have a panic alarm placed in my home, which I had to teach my children how to use because there were threats made to my life. You know, I had um, my, a police officer outside of my door for a fortnight. I had my children could only go to school in a taxi for the best part of three months because that was the only way for them to do so safely. And I got thousands and thousands of emails and messages and letters sent to my offices calling for me to be sacked and wow. deported. Right. Wow. So that is me being challenged. And I can show you, I can assure you, Miriam, had I not been brown, had I been mm. the white prosecutor, yeah. uh, I would have been lauded and carried on people's shoulders through mm. the streets of England, probably. But, uh, but now, because I wasn't, yeah. I was the attempts were made to destroy me and they came very close. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that because I think a lot of people might not be aware of what you had to go through um, uh, after, after that particular case. Um, just a last point, maybe if I may on that one, before we do move on, I'm just wondering, do you have a sense of why it is that there were, you know, public figures, journalists, commentators at the time who did seem keen to make a link between the motivations of the perpetrators and their racial and or religious identity? Some of them were, t was, I mean, I, I, some of them I know well, well enough to be able to say they were doing, in their view, a public service. Um, but people need to know what was happening on the streets of this country. And they did try and focus on the victims as much as the perpetrators. Others uh, undoubtedly would have had an agenda, uh, which is to somehow suggest that the, the other was, uh, this is an example of what the others do, you know, what mm -hmm. people of different backgrounds do. I'm sure that some did that. Some uh, built up a narrative around that, undoubtedly. Uh, some of them would have been, uh, no doubt, um, motivated by racism. There's no doubt in that uh, that as well. Um, so it, it's, again, much more complex picture than, than others. But, you know, as I said, my job was to do my job, and I did my job. Uh, how people report it, how people uh, um, misuse it, as, as clearly happened, uh, how people um, then d developed their own narrative around that. I did my best to try and explain what was going on. You know, mm. and the, go back to what I said, Miriam, I didn't, I, I've done, by that time, I'd only prosecuted, prosecuted one of these cases. But suddenly I was being asked to write for all these national newspapers and appear on television to explain this phenomenon. Mm. And I had no, you know, what am I, what am I supposed to say? And so I, I, I talked about how the victims had been let down by society. I, I talked about how the legal system had let them down. I talked about how authorities had ignored them. And yet, the next question was, oh, we, we accept that. What about these black guys who did it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so people yeah. would constantly come round to that, despite the fact that I'd done my damnedest uh, to talk about what I thought were the real issues. Yeah, no, and I, and I hear that. And I think, yeah, re-centering re the, the victims, of course, always in these cases. Um, now, you've, over the course of your career, you've done a lot to challenge um, what I think you refer to in your book as cultural sensitivity in certain cases, such as honour crimes or forced marriages. Um, what do you mean by this term, cultural sensitivity? I think it's this. Um, if... Um... If a white girl uh, was being abused by her white father, or in this case, um, murdered by her white father, uh, again, experience tells me that would be handled 
very effectively by the police. Um, if she'd gone missing, if she'd been suffering, um, they would have gone in there, they'd have provided all sorts of support. Potentially, they would have prosecuted the individual he'd have been dealt with. What the experience of, not my experience, the experience of survivors groups was, uh, and at that time, we're talking about the early 2000s, there mm -hmm. are a lot of NGOs working with victim survivors, and they were telling me, but if you're a brown girl or a black woman or girl, and you are in the same boat, the police don't step in as readily. In fact, there's research out there that mm. says that if you are a white person, you will potentially suffer between 30 and 35 incidents of abuse before you are taken seriously, before you report to the police. Yeah. But if you are South Asian, it can be two or three times that, potentially yeah. up to 100 incidents before you seek. So the system didn't work or wasn't working. And when I say cultural sensitivity, it's because, again, talking to the officers I've dealt with, talking to those who work with those officers and with the uh, other officials in, in state bodies, um, they were reluctant to go in because they didn't understand what they were dealing with. So when a young girl says, my parents want to send me to Pakistan to marry me off, and I don't want to do that, they were, some of them were being told, uh, what can we do about that? Whereas if a young girl was being sent to be kidnapped somewhere, white girl, yeah. Uh, yeah. rest assured, a serious organized crime team would be involved, people would be arrested, blah, 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 blah. blah. Um, there was a very different approach being taken to victims who were from minority communities. And that was, when I say cultural sensitivity, that means, in my mind, it means a complete lack of awareness, a lack of understanding, uh, which means that uh, they are putting these victims at greater risk than they would be if they weren't of colour. Yes, no, and I'm I'm definitely hearing that. And it's interesting because I think sometimes when we hear the term cultural sensitivity, we might think that people are trying to uh, be particularly attentive to uh, cultural differences. Um, and in this case, I'm just wondering, because it sounds more like a laxness when it comes to the experiences of, in this case, so pre predominantly a young Asian women. Yeah. Um, and and so I wonder where you think that that's coming from a perception of the community and of these young women. What do you think that's rooted in? Um, it's rooted in power, power and control. Um, uh, you know that's what all abuse is rooted in. Um, but when it comes to the, um, uh, the the way the authorities approached it, it yeah. goes back to this view that uh, they are different. And maybe, uh, well, let me give you the, the best example I can give you, actually, is, is of a murder. A murder of a young girl, uh, called, a Kurdish girl called Heshi Yunus. She was murdered at the age of 16 by her father, uh, stabbed to death. Now, Heshi um, was murdered because she had a boyfriend. The only reason her father found out that she had a boyfriend uh, was uh, the teacher ringing him up and saying, your daughter wasn't in school yesterday. Was it anything to do with her boyfriend? Uh, one, a total lack of understanding Oof. on the part of the educationalist yeah. uh, that that was put in, that was a risk, major, major, major risk flag uh, that um, one needed to be aware of. But when, when the father was sentenced by the judge, the judge said to, her, to him, uh, I will have to give you a life, life sentence, but, and here's the big but, I will give you the minimum term that I can give you, 12 years, because I know what it must feel like to have a daughter out of control. Oh my, what? 
Okay. Now, no, not okay. <laughs> no, thankfully, thankfully, we've changed that. And now, right. now, because now, if you harm your own child, you get what we call an aggravated sentence. You will start at a minimum of 25 years. But back then, yeah. that judge reflected, I can see you as a dad. I can see that in your community, dads uh, are, whatever the word is, a bit more, this is a total lack of understanding on the part of the judge. Um, misunderstanding that you, actually you know you the, you the daughter must do what you say uh, and if she decides not to do what you say then the you know i can understand how you must have felt and what pressure you may, may be under and so what's happening here is that the white uh, authority the authorities police judges everybody else yeah. are, are making assumptions mm. about uh, the community based on something they've read yeah something they've heard uh, rather than really looking at this case in the way that they would look at anybody else's case. And so when I say cultural sensitivity, I, it works in a, in a very negative way here. Um, they treat them differently, but poorly, because they make, a, they make this assumption, a wrongful assumption, that they have different, that w women and girls, for example, should be treated differently in that community, because that's, that's the way they always have been. Mm. You know? um, and so... That's the response to that, of course, has to be greater awareness raising and, and greater education, et cetera, et cetera. But mm. that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, no, I see that. And I mean, it's particularly interesting, I suppose, for, for you, given I, I was reading that your mother campaigned against um, arranged marriages for young girls, I think. Yeah. And well, you, my you were, mother, I mean, yeah. she didn't know what it was back then, but um, you know, she would walk, she was one of the earliest immigrants from, from that part of the world, and she would go around the the community uh, in Birmingham, and if she became aware of a young girl that was being married off early, 14, 15, uh, she would remonstrate with that family. She, so it wasn't a campaigner. She was a hands-on. Mm. And, and it wasn't, a, you know, she would simply say to them, this is wrong. You yeah. know, let this girl, one of the reasons why we're here in the UK now is to give our children the opportunities for an education, to make better of themselves. And by marrying her off at 14 or 15, you're not giving her that opportunity. So... Um, I think that was her driver, and of course that undoubtedly entered my psyche in some way. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, well, I want to move on, if I may, to an, another major case that you were involved in. So you played an integral role um, in a case which was a flashpoint for UK race relations and involved the riots following the police killing of Mark Duggan. So mm. for those who don't know who Mark Duggan is, he was a 29-year-old British man who was shot and killed by police in Tottenham, which is in North London, in 2011. The case sparked protests which then descended into riots across the country, uh, partly because members of the community raised questions around the circumstances of his killing and official accounts of Duggan's death have undergone numerous changes. Was racism an element in Mark Duggan's killing, in your view? Again, I, I, I'm, I, was, I dealt with the consequences of the killing rather than the killing itself. And uh, I've read the inquiry. I was very conscious of what the inquiry was. Um, and my personal view is that racism didn't play a part. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I can see why people might think that. Perception, of course, is, is as strong as reality, isn't it? So mm -hmm. um, would, he have been, uh, would he have been targeted the way he was targeted were it not for the colour of his skin? The police would argue and the evidence suggested that he was armed. Um, so they would say, yes, we wouldn't have made any difference to the colour of his skin. Mm -hmm. um, but we said at the outset, 
that if you are somebody who's black or brown, you're more likely to be stopped, searched, arrested, etc. So uh, that clearly has a, a part to play. Uh, but yeah. I've seen, I've seen, what I dealt with was the consequences, the fact that yeah. people had decided to uh, riot, uh, commit public disorder. Uh, and again, I, I saw it from this prison, actually, just as a member of my community. Mm-hmm. In my community, I was seeing shops run by Asians, black people being attacked uh, mm-hmm. for no reason other than, not because of Mark Duggan, uh, not even because of the police. They, were, they weren't attacked. They were going in and stealing stuff. Uh, and they were breaking windows and they were causing absolute havoc amongst the communities that they were part of and they lived mm-hmm. in. And so my duty and responsibility was to them. You know, the people who were uh, suffering as a result of this disorder. Whilst I, I can have immense sympathy, as I did, and I do, uh, for people who um, are the subject of racism, uh, police racism, or police misbehavior, or whatever you may want to call it. Uh, at the same time, I have enormous sympathy for people who are who built up a business, and I want to protect it. I want consequences for people who decided to destroy it. And and so, as someone who who you know prosecuted cases in relation to the riots themselves, what? There was a lot of discussion about what the riots were about. What did you, you know, they're described as race riots in, in the press. What, what do you think was the cause of those riots? Yeah, I don't think it was race riots. And uh, I mean, I've lived through race riots in, in, um, in the 1980s. Uh, and I'm, they were because um, of the ridiculous uh, approach of the authorities to the communities they were part of. What we had in, because uh, they happened all over the country, but in particular, I dealt with the ones in, in, in the north of England. Uh, what we had was organized crime. Uh, I think people, uh, people really don't pay much attention uh, to what was going on. Um, but I've seen the intelligence that was gathered. And you had what the kinds of organized criminals that I deal with or dealt with routinely were instigators. They mm-hmm. were telling people, go and attack this shop bring us back this, that, and the other. Yes, amongst that group, there will be people who are affronted by the behavior of the police that will have their own, uh, you know, um, their own motivation. But a sizable proportion of the people who were engaged in that violence and that disorder uh, were, were acting, acting on behalf of or were part of organized crime. And so uh, that's what makes life more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why... You know, at the end of the day, my job and our job, my team's job, was to bring offenders to justice. We're not responsible for sentencing. That's for the judges to do. If the judges decide to send somebody to prison for longer than they would do otherwise, that's them applying the guidelines. Uh, so I, my job and my team's job and the police's job at that time was to collect the evidence. Uh, you know, we will deal. And what we did do afterwards was try and understand what had happened. And we, yeah. and I, I spent even in the aftermath of Rochdale, in the aftermath of all the other types of behaviour that I've dealt with, I often engaged, well, always engaged with the communities afterwards to understand why and to talk to them, to listen to them more importantly, uh, and to provide reassurance as to how we approach something. I think that's what... That's how we build a community. Uh, that is, yeah. You know, what I what I'm always concerned about, Miriam, is that uh, I don't believe uh, the authorities were community all the time. Mm-hmm. They, there was a saying that we worked in the interests of justice, which became working in the interests of just us. Mm. Uh, that we, yeah, you know, we we did our job and we didn't really engage with the public. And you know, I, 
I'm a victim of crime. You mentioned before, more recently, uh, my nephew was murdered in a, in a stabbing. I've you know, been a victim of many, many types of behaviours. And we have to remember that um, uh, the state most of the time gets it right. But there will be and there are structural reasons, institutional reasons, uh, racism, discrimination, uh, all of those things. Um, lack of understanding, poor training, poor awareness are treated very and and one first off I'm very sorry to hear um about your nephew um he uh, is you know one of, I'm presumably with with yourself as is his uncle as well you would uh, be very familiar with the issues facing young men when it comes to these um stabbings and and youth violence I mean do you feel that there is um enough understanding within the forces that are rec- that are currently um, policing young people of the issues that they face beyond the violence itself because I suppose to look at just the violence might be to look at sort of the you know when the pot's boiling over and, and not much of, of what's leading the fire to burn. No I, I'm, I'm with you on that I mean my, my nephew was murdered by another 17 year old boy uh, also from a minority community uh, who has significant mental health issues uh, yeah. And I suspect his mental health issues weren't really being addressed. And some mm. of that will, will be because of a lack of uh, services and lack of resources. Some of that will be because of racism. I don't know. Um, mm. But, yeah, absolutely. They're, um, you know, what can I say? Um, I think that, that we, ha- we are in a bad place. Uh, and I say why we're in a bad place. Uh, because last year, more than 100 young people were killed in knife attacks mm-hmm. uh, in this country, in the UK. Uh, and... Most of them are between the ages of 12 and 21. Yeah. And we, uh, we, homicide is the fourth largest killer of children and young people. Uh, and we have a seismic number of young people in street, gang, street gangs, in organized crime gangs who are now unfortunately involved in the drug trade, supply or otherwise, uh, who are, as I said a moment ago, having mental health issues, uh, who are suffering peer pressure, uh, it is a very complex picture, and I don't understand why the state isn't taking it very seriously. Part of the reason may be because they're not like us. And mm-hmm. by that, I don't mean racism, because they're young. Young yeah. people will tell you that they don't have any voices. How many, mm-hmm. When I, I was invited, in the aftermath of my nephew's murder, I was invited uh, by the then uh, Prime Minister to a summit, knife crime. I didn't go. The reason why I didn't go is I've been to enough of these summits. They're talking mm-hmm. shops of adults talking about what adults think the young people need to do. What yeah. I wanted to do and what I did and continue to do is meet with young people. They mm-hmm. are the people who really understand the issues. They will tell you it's poor education, it's poor policing as they see it, it's um, uh, the environments they live in, it's uh, the systemic uh, racism they face potentially, it's the, the, fe- the fear that they feel when they walk out the door, the risk assessments they have to carry out. You know, 15-year-old children are carrying out risk assessments. If I go down that street, I'm 50% likely to be hurt or harmed. Yeah. It's ridiculous that we've got to a state like that. And so what the state does really well is deal with the consequences when something terrible has happened. What the state does really poorly is to prevent it happening in the first place. Mm. 
Um, well, on that note, we, the, the recent YouGov poll that you may have seen that found that 70% of Black Britons believe the Metropolitan Police is institutionally racist. Um, here in the UK, we know that that was also the finding of the um, Metropolitan Police Service investigation following the racially motivated murder of Stephen Lawrence in 1993. Um, is the police still institutionally racist in 2020, in your view? Yes. Uh, you know, every in fact, every institution is. I remember I was part of the McPherson inquiry, which happened post Lawrence, uh, and I remember what happened. Every institution, Miriam, police, yeah. social services, everybody admitted they were institutional racist. In fact, right. there was, it was almost like a wearing a badge of honour. They were so keen to admit to the world that they were institutionally racist. Oh. Uh, I, I, almost, but then what happened was right. We've done that. We can go back to normal. Okay, well, um, this is, uh, yeah. And that's what happened. So what they did, you know, I was talking to somebody earlier on today about their race action plan. To put it bluntly, we've, I've seen and heard a thousand race action plans. I've seen and met thousands of diversity officers. I've seen so many equality and diversity initiatives, and yet things remain roughly the same. Mm. Uh, you know, I spoke at an event of National Health Service leaders, 400 National Health Service leaders from around this country earlier this year. And I was the keynote speaker, and yet and I was the only person of colour in the room. Oh, wow. And the National Health Service is 20-25% minority employees. But the leadership remains plainly white. So yeah. we've got a problem. Every institution, never mind the, the police and justice system, every major institution in this country still struggles with this. And when I talk to them about diversity, I'm not talking to them about just the colour of people. I'm talking to them about the fact of diversity of decision making. Yeah. I, one of the things I do, and I, again, earlier on today, I was talking to one of the families that were involved, uh, victims of the Grenfell fire, that yeah. took place three years ago. And they know for a fact, is, isn't it obvious that that cladding that was on that building would not have been on that building if people of colour, people who lived in that block of flats, were on the decision-making body, they decided what cladding should go on that. Yeah, Absolutely. diversity is about better decision-making. Mm. And th that message hasn't got through to as many people as it needs to. And every institution in this country remains racist until they begin to properly address it. And so... And I, and I take your point fully there, and, um, and, and in many ways, that's what the problem of whiteness is, that it feeds into every single institution. But, it, but if we can focus in on the police in particular, where are they going wrong? Because we have seen so many efforts to kind of diversify the police force and recruit new, uh, new faces, as it's often put, um, and obviously internal inquiries. Where, where, where is it going wrong? Well, it starts at the top. Um, where we speak, we're speaking today, of the 43 chief constables in this country, not one is from a minority, visible minority. Right. Uh, in fact, in the history of policing in this country, which is 190 years old, there has only been one black chief constable in the whole of our history. Right. So it starts there. Uh, you then go down uh, and it's the other senior levels, and you'll find a few more. Um, so demography, the uh, population, as in the working population, remains, um, yes, they may have made some differences at the lower levels. Uh, but also, to become a chief constable, uh, Miriam, you've got to be formally or currently a deputy or assistant. 
and there are hardly any people of colour in that group. So we're right. looking at 10 years or more before we get somebody of colour in the, one of those senior roles. That's, mm. that's the challenge, one challenge we face. We've had a government who admitted, uh, who decided that they want to now recruit 20,000 new officers. Now, I've been looking at the officers that have been recruited. And again, very, very few people from minority backgrounds. So it's going to take decades uh, for policing in this country to reflect the communities they serve. And again, I don't want to, not, not just blaming police here, every institution, I, I say this to government when I meet with government, that is they, they regularly meet with what they call the community leaders. Um, do you have a community leader? Because I ain't got one. I, I don't, I'm often very curious as to what this means because well, exactly I don't know that. anyone who could speak for me. Yeah. Exactly that. Uh, because they're really lazy. Institutions are really lazy. Uh, and they will, and if somebody shouts and screams saying, I'm the community leader for X community, uh, the government listen. But it's just, but uh, not, not, they bring them into a room. I've wasted hours of my life sitting down with people who claim to be community leaders, who have no representation, representative role, who have no understanding of the of the local communities, but do it for their own ego. And so, uh, government and institutions are really lazy. The police will regularly meet with a group of people, um, with whom they and some of them are all of them, all of them are well-meaning, uh, but some of them will have absolutely no credibility. Uh, within their local community. And so we are miles away from where we need to be. It, one aspect of leadership that I always make a uh, comment on is listening skills. Leaders are good at talking uh, and they're sometimes good at action, but they're really poor at listening. And they need to sit and listen to groups of people who are suffering the impact of their decisions. That's how we'll make the change. Mm. And and what about the um, BLM UK have been calling to defund the police? And I know that some people have sort of looked at that as completely ludicrous, but actually in, in the detail, it's, much, it's in large part the idea that a lot of the funds that are going into policing communities might actually be better spent in investing in, um, I guess, community support programmes and, and initiatives within the community that would begin before policing them. Um, what, what's your view on the, the sort of defund the police um, position? I, th I think the way you present it is like an either or. Um, right now, if you if, I, if somebody asked me, uh, I'm being burgled on the Zia, uh, who shall I call? I would say to them, ring a pizza company. They're more likely to come in 15 minutes than a police mm. officer is. Wow. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, you know, the reality is that the policing has been absolutely decimated in the last decade or so to the point where they've lost half a million years of experience. They've lost uh, real talent and they're just the numbers on there. So defunding organizations that don't have any funds, uh, I'm afraid, is not the starter. Um, mm. Absolutely. More money needs to go into uh, re rehabilitative work. More money needs to go into prevention work. More money needs to go into children's services, youth services. Uh, all of the areas that you've identified and more, uh, but not at the expense of, an, of institutions that are already struggling. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that, so. the concept of defund the police might work in the United States of America. The United States policing, and I've worked with American policing, uh, is much more militarized. You know, it's obviously armed uh, and, um, and doesn't necessarily believe in the concept of policing by consent in the way that we do in this country. You know? mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, you know, the police here do attempt 
to engage with the communities, even if they don't do it particularly well. Uh, mm-hmm. But you wouldn't find that in the United States of America. So for me, it's not an, it's not an either or issue. Uh, absolutely, policing needs to get its act together, but policing needs more funding than it has currently. But at the same time, simultaneously, uh, funds have to be found in the preventative sphere, sphere in the community spheres. Yeah, now I hear that. And and uh, last question, um, as we're running a little short on time now, um, do you think that whiteness is a useful conceptual tools in understanding problems of racism here in the UK? Uh, and and I suppose related to that in in a certain way, do you think our society can overcome whiteness? Is that something you think is even possible? Um, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. It, it's until we started talking about it, it's, uh, the, con- the term whiteness is not something that I uh, I recognised. Um, and I think if we're going to really make an impact on something, we've got to use language that people understand. Um, they understand uh, why somebody who's black or brown uh, might be suffering discrimination. They understand why white working class um, boys and girls potentially are also impacted in, in negatively by uh, various government or lack of government initiatives. Uh, we need allies. We need allies. You know, I, I've always found it easier to win an argument if I've got allies from uh, other spheres of society, um, different backgrounds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I yeah. think there's a, the, the element, the concern for me around the whiteness. Um, whilst I totally understand it and, and get it, and I, I believe in what you've what you what you've talked about and what what we've what we've talked about. Um, I, to my mind, I, I would rather focus on uh, terms and terms that we all understand, and people do understand the concept of racism. People do understand, to some extent, the concept of white privilege. They do understand uh, white supremacy. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I'd, again, I, I, strange as it may sound, I tested it out on my children, uh, <laughs> who are extremely bright, uh, three of them at university. Uh, and I said to them, what does whiteness mean to you? Two of them, it was about paint. The third one, <laughs> the, th- the third one really had no idea at all. So, um, right. so I think sometimes, and th- th- this is not a criticism of the, of the term. Uh, no, this sure. is a criticism of the awareness of the issue. Mm. Uh, but, but, but I think you know if we're going to really win this battle, and I, I personally believe I, c- I can, and we will. And I, the reason why we will is I look at my children because mm. they are much more accepting, much more tolerant, more diverse. Uh, they they don't think about who, where where their friends come from and their heritage and their backgrounds. You know, mm. they they just see them as people, and that's how we will win this battle. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Nazir, for joining us today, and uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Um, you can buy uh, Nazir Afsal's book, The Prosecutor, at all good bookshops. Nazir, I always suggest to our um, speakers, if there's somewhere you'd like to recommend people purchase your book. Um, some people don't want people to go to, to Amazon and, and uh, would prefer they what, went to... Yeah. Absolutely. Well, currently we're in lockdown again in the UK, uh, so I don't think you've got many choices online, but I always prefer the independent bookshops. Uh, I, you know, they need your custom. Yes, indeed. Okay. And and uh, join us uh, next time for more explorations of whiteness. If you like this podcast, please like, subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you so much for joining us.